Good afternoon, and welcome to Teratech's Fiscal Year 2017 Financial Results Conference Call. A replay of this call will be available at www.smallcapvoice.com and will be archived on the Investor Relations section of the Teratech website. Before we begin, please let me remind you that during the course of this conference call, Teratech's management may make forward-looking statements. These forward-looking statements are based on current expectations that are subject to a number of risks and uncertainties that may cause actual results to differ materially from expectations. These risks are outlined in the risk factor section of our SEC filings. Any forward-looking statements should be considered in light of these factors. Please also note as a safe harbor, any outlook we present is as of today, and management does not undertake any obligation to revise any forward-looking statements in the future. With me on the call today are Mr. Derek Peterson, Teratech's Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, and Mr. Michael James, Chief Financial Officer. With that, I would now like to hand the call over to Derek. Derek, please go ahead. Hey, Phil, thank you, and thank you, everybody, for taking the time to join us today as we discuss Teratech's 2017 fiscal year-end results, and also, like usual, want to provide an operational business update uh, for everybody as well. We have on the call, as uh, Phil had said, Mike James, our CFO, is going to do a little bit of a deeper, more educated dive into the financials than I'll give you, and he'll start in a little bit after I've gone through some of the operational progress we made in, in 2017. And, and first off, sorry for the delay from Thursday to Friday for a filing. The real reason behind that was is, you know, we had to file two years. You know, so we filed our two seven, we had to audit our 2017 numbers, but we actually had to go back and re-audit our 2015 numbers. The auditors we used back then lost their uh, PCAOB status, so we had a new firm come in, re-audit the financials for 15, and had to do a 17 audit over. So it was a pretty heavy lift for us, and we slid into home here. So thank you for the patience on that, and again, sorry to reschedule everybody's uh, time and energy for, uh, for listening in today. 2017 recap, we made significant headway executing on our strategy position Terratech as a player in the multi-billion dollar legal cannabis market. Our Bloom Retail Dispensaries and Wholesale High Grade, IVXX as we call IVEX internally, Flowers and Oils have emerged as a leader in California and the Nevada market, cementing our reputation as a premium brand, but also driving rapid revenue growth for the company over the past several quarters. Quick summary of the results, we did $11 million in revenue for the quarter. That's a 54% increase compared to the prior quarter, prior year. Um, in terms of our fiscal year performance, we reported $36 million in full year revenue compared with $25 million in 2016, so an increase of about $11 million in revenue. This was driven primarily from the cannabis segment, which we saw 127% year-over-year revenue growth increase from compared to 16. And then we entered 2018 with strong sales momentum as well. So in today's call, we're going to discuss our progress across California, Nevada. I'm going to talk a little bit about New Jersey now that it's starting to have some conversation around cannabis initiatives there. And we'll talk about our initiatives to grow in each of the markets for uh, 2018. I want to cover the $40 million investment commitment that we announced on Monday, as well as obviously the reverse split, which I think is a pretty sensitive subject for everybody across the board, and explain how we're expected to drive value creation for Terratech in 2018 and onward. So just a quick summary. California, as you know, adult use sales came online January 2018. We got all of our authorizations from, uh, from the state for uh, distributing and retailing cannabis at our locations. We, um, we have some additional stuff coming online throughout this year, which we'll obviously have permitted with the state as those, as those, uh, as those facilities turn on both retail and cultivation. As you know, California is the largest state by population. We have 40 million residents and over 250 million tourists that we serve throughout um, the market here. 
Uh, a recent report that we read from BDS Analytics estimated the California sales of cannabis to hit $3.7 billion by the end of 2018 and to increase $5.1 billion in 2019. And I've seen reports you know, ranging at full development from 7 to $10 billion being the market size in California at full bore, at full capacity. Those numbers will remain to be seen, but uh, it's, a, it's a great market in our backyard that we can build economies of scale and really build a fundamental business here. Throughout 2017, we took several steps to prepare, prepare the company for the start of the adult use sales. We had an organic growth and an M&A strategy. We expect to achieve a footprint within California market throughout 2018 that allows for us to produce 20,000 pounds of product per, per year of cannabis. Um, in Oakland, let's start there. We're currently constructing a 13,000 square foot cultivation facility. That one will be coming online later this year. That facility in and of itself is going to have the ability to produce one metric ton of cannabis per year. We received a provisional cultivation permit in Q2 2017 and expect to be fully operational by mid-2018. This location will obviously supply our Bloom Oakland dispensary, which has been operated by us since April 2016 after we acquired it. And we've got a great location there. Again, we're seeing about 1,000 patients a day out of our retail footprint in the Oakland marketplace. And uh, this will, again, feed the IVEX brand through multiple stores, but it will be a great driver of product with low margins through our uh, retail footprint in Oakland, California. Santa Ana, as you know, we acquired a dispensary there. The fourth quarter was a full first quarter of revenues for us out of the Santa Ana location. Uh, we've got great brand recognition down here in the Southern California marketplace. I think people have been waiting for the Bloom and the IVEX brand to arrive in SoCal for some time. Santa Ana has created a great platform for us to be able to build a significant business down here. They've taken a thought leadership standpoint to be the Southern California hub for cannabis activities, and we're going to fully take advantage of, of the permitting activities down here as well. That being said, on February 1st, we submitted applications to open two additional retail dispensaries in Santa Ana, and we expect the city to announce whether these are approved in the next couple months. In San Leandro, for uh, some of the new people joining the call, we've been constructing a new Bloom dispensary as well as an extraction facility, laboratory, and um, commercial kitchen. That is currently underway. They're going to open up at different times. The retail facility will open up sometime in May, and then we're thinking latter part of Q2, early Q3 for the uh, extraction and facility in the kitchen to go along with that. We think those are going to be great facilities for us, but we'll start to see some revenue being driven out of the retail position, uh, we're hoping sometime in May, depending on the, uh, the local and state licensing. M&A, in addition to our organic growth strategy that I kind of just went through, we continue to explore M&A opportunities in California. As one of the larger operators in the state with the legal expertise and operational capacity, we're really taking advantage of our size and scope and the fact that we're a public market vehicle for people that are looking for an exit to, to put together M&A opportunities for us. The pipeline for us is relatively full compared to what we've seen in the prior years. Um, and I think as the, uh, as the time goes on in the new environment and the administrative and the regulatory burdens are, are pretty significant here, we're starting to see some exhaustion out of the longer-term operators that had a great opportunity to operate in this gray market environment but don't necessarily have the skill sets or appetite to stay embedded in this, in this market that's got far more regulation. So, again, all of that kind of regulatory admin exhaustion has led to seeing a pretty, pretty impactful and pretty significant M&A pipeline for us. In Nevada, uh, in July, as, as many of you know, last July we commenced sales of cannabis for adult use at our four Bloom dispensaries in Nevada following the approval of our dual-use marijuana business licenses by the state. 
Las Vegas dispensaries are four of them, or well, three of them in Las Vegas. We have one on Decatur, one on Western Ave, and one on Desert Inn. We also have one on South Virginia in, in Midtown Reno in a great location there. So we have the entire Nevada marketplace very well saturated from both a retail perspective, and again, I'll talk in a minute how we're ramping up our commercial cultivation and extraction back, backbone in, the, in that state as well. One thing that, that is to be noted in the last six months of last year, so from July to the end of the year when, medical, or when adult use kicked on in Nevada, we're actually running EBITDA positive just at our retail stores. So if you look at our retail stores and carve that out from the rest of the overhead of the company, we're, we're EBITDA positive for the last six months of 2017. And that was kind of what one of our core focuses originally was let's go on an M&A spree, let's go on an organic growth spree, we've got to build up our compliance departments, build up our legal departments, all of that buildup, both on a CapEx and a personnel level, obviously, comes with a significant amount of spending, but we did that so that we could obviously have the backbone necessary to bring in the new stores, bring in new retail facilities, bring in new cultivation and extraction facilities, and be able to plug them into our regulatory framework so that we can operate in a compliant manner. But our goal and objective was to make sure that these subsidiaries in and of themselves are operating on a cash flow positive, EBITDA positive standpoint. That way down the line, our broader corporate strategy is after we scramble for market share and scramble for growth, at some point in the not-too-distant future, we can say we're going to begin to start to slow growth. Let's start to lean out. Let's start to cut some of the government relations. Let's start to cut a little bit in our lobbying and legal efforts and then really turn on the cash flow machine at that point in time. And so that was nice for us to be able to see that a lot of the, uh, the, the processes and protocols and, and marketing that we put in place have resulted in EBITDA positive performance for our retail facilities for the last six months of last year. In addition to that, again, one of the important things for margin expansion is to make sure we have our own cultivation and extraction. And as you know, we completed the construction of a new 30,000-square-foot cannabis cultivation facility in Sparks, Nevada, and also a 15,000-square-foot cannabis extraction facility in Reno, not too far away from the cultivation. And we did that one in a joint venture with New Leaf. New Leaf, as some of you may know and many of you don't, they also operate two retail dispensaries, one in Las Vegas and one in uh, uh, Lake Tahoe, not in our same market out there, but it's a great complement to us. It gives us an additional two stores within the family to be able to push the IVEX product through and to be able to have uh, as a business component for us. New Jersey. So we obviously have our edible garden footprint back there. We have our five-acre Dutch-style fully automated greenhouse facility that we produce the edible garden brand of produce that we disseminate in a, in a couple thousand retail stores um, throughout the Northeast Midwest. And now we've migrated some of that penetration out to the California West Coast markets. And again, we're starting to, to ramp up additional exposure throughout those markets. We've taken a lot of steps last year to streamline our operations. And as I said last year, one of the things we wanted to do was cut out the flower production component of the company. Even though that provided a handful of millions of dollars a year in revenue, the margins were extremely low. And one of our core focuses, as I've said in the prior calls, is to make sure we have significant margin expansion in the upcoming years. And so even though it was a nice revenue number for us, it, it actually drew down the, the uh, consolidated gross margin. So we make it, made a decision to exit out of that business. And so when we exited out of that side of the business, it obviously caused for us and to lose some of that uh, revenue, revenue momentum, but it was the right thing for us to do at the time to focus just on the core business, which was the produce. So gross margins went up, the revenue went down in that division a little bit, and that was strictly because, again, we migrated out of the flower business to focus on the core produce business and also to make sure we're positioning ourselves for the future cannabis opportunities that are going to you know, hopefully expose themselves in the state in the upcoming couple quarters. 
We have expanded our range of products sold. We introduced butter lettuce. We introduced our snippets line. Uh, our growth plan is supported by an expanded marketing campaign for the Edible Garden products, and the company right now is constructing a major new pack house on property in New Jersey to distribute salads and leafy greens and cut products for Edible Garden. So that tying into the New Jersey cannabis opportunity, people asked for years, you know, why did we go into the farming side? And originally, again, it was done as a hedge that if we woke up one morning and the federal government decided to shut the cannabis industry down, that all of our eggs weren't in one basket, that hedge has worked out to be a complementary business segment from a handful of standpoints, one of which was optics. You know, one of the reasons I think we were so successful in Nevada marketplace for getting permits was because we had existing relationships with Walmart and Kroger's and companies like that, and we ran a significant, you know, uh, facility that was GFSI certified and USD organic, and that really separated and segregated ourselves from the competition in the Nevada marketplace. And again, so that, that, that hedge for us became a complement to us, and now hopefully even more so as we work you know, in Nevada on the legislation, the regulatory environment that's shifting over there now with Chris Christie out and the entering of Governor Murphy, who's made it a, a significant um, stand on his campaign to legalize adult-use cannabis in New Jersey. So first and foremost, the first thing they're going to do is expand rapidly the medical program by the issuance of additional licenses and cultivation extraction and retail. While that's happening, the secondary approach is to get some framework for regulation around adult use within the state. The beauty of us is we have existing infrastructures that we've said back there. We have corporate offices. We have HR. We have admin. We obviously have the CapEx of the, the facility that we built back there. The pack house could come in to potentially host an extraction facility. So at the end of the day, we're relatively ramped up to have some semblance of first mover advantage for a second round here, and we're working heavily right now lobbying to, to guide the regulations to make sure that we have the ability to produce that product uh, at the New Jersey facility. Um, Financing and reverse split. So as many of you see, we've got lots of opportunity to build our business in multiple markets. Our core focus, like I said, is California, Nevada, and New Jersey right now. We've made significant headway aggressively investing in growth to leverage our first mover advantage in all markets. And the strategy has given us several advantages over the competition. We've got well-known brand names, you know, partly because we've got great, you know, traction media because we're a public company. So our brands are showcased pretty frequently. I think we had over 900 publications last year. We've got a wide geographic footprint, so we're in many markets that have a high degree of tourism. We've got 45 million people that travel in and out of the borders and barriers of Nevada, 250 into to California. So having that embedded uh, infrastructure in those key markets exposes our branding to people globally, which is a great opportunity for us to get brand exposure. Um, we've got, uh, you know, again, publicity, positive media coverage. We're getting now beginning to start to develop some economies of scale as our, as our growth increases from a buying power standpoint, whether it's packaging or actual product, we're able to leverage our multiple locations and the fact that uh, we've got exposure in-state and other states to, to get better pricing through uh, other host, wholesalers if products exist on our shelves. And we wanted to grow. So obviously to grow, we obviously need access to capital, which, you know, the $40 million investment that we just talked about uh, earlier in the week is a big component of that. So that $40 million is coming in eight tranches of $5 million bucks each quarter over the next 24 months. And one of the main reasons we did that is we scoped out what our growth and CapEx requirements are over the next two years. And we may move those timelines around a little bit, but for all practical purposes, I never want a giant tranche of capital coming into the market from a, from, a, from a share standpoint and putting too much pressure on the market, which is why we normally like to, you know, kind of space out these tranches so there's never 
any big conversions and any big stock sales hitting in any short period of time. We mentioned previously that we were going to do a reverse split in conjunction with either a capital raise or an uplisting or any kind of a major transaction that, we affect, that would affect a reverse split in conjunction with the financing to increase our share price. So, you know, we did the, we did the financing for a handful of reasons, which I'll touch on in just a, just a minute. But the capital raise essentially provided the company with enough growth capital to execute on the business model over the next 24 months. We believe these steps will fuel the growth of the company and help create value for shareholders. So one of the main catalysts for the reverse split, and again, it's a confusing thing for a lot of people, and, I, and, and, and it's also a scary thing for a lot of people, but I wanted to kind of simplify it for some of the, from some of the, you know, kind of the more uh, um, um, novice shareholders that may be on the call today. But you know, one of the main reasons we did that was access to capital. You know, there's still a negative stigma that exists for a company that's a penny stock. It doesn't matter if another stock is, 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 has a $50 million market cap. If they're $5 a share, there's just a lot of people that see that as a better company than a $0.30 cent a share company, even though our market cap may be 10 times the side. And I think of a reverse fit a lot like a pizza, and I hate to trivialize it like that, but I can order a pizza with eight slices. I can order a pizza with six slices. I can order a pizza with two slices. At the end of the day, I still have a full pizza. So the economics maintain the, the, uh, the same thing, but we did it again for the ability to have access to capital. We saved about 20% in cost on this major capital investment that we're bringing in versus the prior tranche that we've done. So the capital's coming in far more affordably than the capital that we've done in the past. We've also been getting word from shareholders that broker-dealers have been borrowing um, access to penny stocks in the cannabis space. So, you know, the other binary you know, intention with this was to make sure that people had an easier time to trade in the stock, and it opened up potentially more op options and opportunities. The other real issue that we had was, you know, we leverage our stock, as you've seen with the Santa Ana acquisition and the Oakland acquisition, for an M&A strategy. What we've been running into in a few scenarios are people that didn't want to take stock for a penny stock. So they just, there's just this kind of, you know, it doesn't really have common sense behind it, but there's a lot of people that just don't want to take stock for a company that's under a buck. The optics of that caused us a problem in a couple potential M&As that we were trying to close on because they were just scared about taking a penny stock. So part of it is an optical improvement, and part of it is access to banking. One of the things that banks do when they do due diligence on us um, is, is look at you know, our stock and look at our capitalization and all those types of aspects. And penny stocks, again, come with a negative connotation. And so our, one of the other binary you know, reasons and intentions behind this on top of the other ones that we listed was to be, be able to secure additional banking relationships and just having the optics of being a more mature company. But the real initiative behind this, as many of you have seen with the listing of Kronos and the intended potential listing for Canopy Growth and others that have an interest to list on the NASDAQ, is to make sure we are absolutely prepped for an uplisting. And this was the only component, if you look through the different standards of potentially uplisting, we met every single standard across the board, with the exception of the price per share. Now, I don't know when the NASDAQ or the NYSE is going to allow a company that's touching the plant to list on the exchanges, but I can tell you this. I want to make sure we are the first um, company in the, sta in, the, in the states that's touching the plant that has the ability to uplist. And so if they open the door to the party for us, I want to be standing on the front door in a tuxedo. I don't want to be home, at home getting ready. So the big reason that we did this is to make sure that we have the company completely positioned at this point in time for a potential uplisting. And, and that was the other driver behind doing and conducting the reverse split. So um, I'm going to probably be digging a little bit deeper into that and some of the questions and answers because I know a lot of people had questions around this. But before I do that, I'm going to now turn the call over to our CFO, Mike James, 
uh, who can just do a little bit of a deeper dive and review of the financials. Mike, the call is yours. Thank you, Derek, and good afternoon, everyone. I will now provide you with a summary of our fiscal 2017 results. For the more detailed results, please refer to the press release that we issued earlier today, which is posted on our website, along with a Form 10-K filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. In addition, please note that we compile our financials under U.S. GAAP, including our non-operating expenses. For the fiscal year ended December 31, 2017, we generated revenues of $35.8 million compared to $25.3 million for the fiscal year ended December 31, 2016, an increase of $10.5 million, or 41.4%. The increase was driven by sales in the cannabis segment, which increased 127.4% due to the higher sales from the company's four Nevada-based Bloom dispensaries. It was partially offset by lower sales from Edible Garden, due to the discontinuation of sales of its low-margin floral products. Revenue from the fourth quarter ended December 31, 2017, was $11.01 million, a 54% increase compared to $7.13 million a year ago. Our gross profit for the fiscal year ended December 31, 2017, was $5.48 million, compared to a gross profit of $2.57 million, for the fiscal year ended December 31, 2016, an increase of $2.9 million, or 112.9%. Our gross margin percentage for the fiscal year ended December 31, 2017, was 15.3% compared to 10.2% for the fiscal year ended December 31, 2016. The increase in gross profit margin percentage was attributable to the cannabis segment, which had $4.9 million and 1.5 million gross profit for the fiscal year ended December 31st, 2017 and 2016 respectively, or 16.4% and 11.7% gross margin for the fiscal years ended December 31st, 2017 and 2016 respectively. The edible garden herbs and produce segment gross profits decreased from 979,000 for the fiscal year ended December 31st, 2016 to 490,000 for the fiscal year ended December 31, 2017, due to the expiration of the floral product contract. Gross margins at Edible Garden increased slightly to 8.6% in the fiscal year ended December 31, 2017, from 8.2% gross margin in 2016. Selling general and administrative expenses for the fiscal year ended December 31, 2017, were $25.4 million compared to $20.7 million for the fiscal year ended December 31, 2016, an increase of $4.6 million, or 22.4%. The increase was partially offset due to an increase in salaries due to the new hires associated with the Bloom dispensaries and an increase in accounting and compliance personnel costs. Other expenses include an increase in depreciation expense due to the fixed assets placed in service for the Nevada dispensaries. We realized a net loss to Terratech of approximately $32.68 million, or $0.71 cents per share, for the fiscal year ended December 31, 2017, compared to a net loss of $26.92 million, or $1.04 per share, for the fiscal year ended December 31, 2016. Expenses that contributed to this loss include a loss on the fair market valuation of derivatives of $3.49 million, 
a loss from the extinguishment of debt of $7.14 million from the conversion of debt into equity, and a loss from the fair market valuation of contingent consideration of $4.43 million, offset by a gain on the segment of contingent consideration in the amount of $4.99 million. Now turning to the balance sheet. On December 31, 2017, we had a cash balance of approximately $5.45 million compared to a cash balance of approximately $9.75 million at December 31, 2016. We had no short-term debt as of December 31, 2017, compared to approximately $564,000 as of December 31, 2016. Long-term debt increased from approximately $1.4 million to approximately $6.6 million as of December 31, 2017. Stockholders' equity for the fiscal year December 2017 amounted to approximately $76.8 million compared to $52.2 million as of December 31, 2016. Subsequent to the quarter end, the company announced that it had secured a $40 million line of credit to be made in eight tranches of $5 million each over 24 months, and as of March 16, 2018, the company has received $5 million under this line of credit. Now I'd like to turn the call back over to Derek for some closing comments. Hey, Mike. So thank you. In, in, in summary, um, shareholder equity went up $75 million, up from $52 million for the same year prior. In 2017, the cannabis segment had contributed 84% of total revenues, and that was a 120% increase year over year. Our strong revenue growth is validating our strategy. We're encouraged by the strong results we reported this year, as well as the operational achievements, and look forward to continuing to grow the business and value for the shareholders over 2018 and beyond. We're continuing to make improvements in corporate governance. And as mentioned, the fund for expansions, we have secured $40 million investment commitment to be made in eight tranches of $5 million over the next 24 months. All this capital is going to be directed towards the build-out of our cultivation, extraction, retail infrastructure in California, Nevada, as well as New Jersey giving us also some flexibility and capital to leverage the M&A opportunities and ramp our sales and marketing strategies as well. So where have we spent our money and where are we going to spend our money? So in New Jersey, for example, we've built ourselves a significant footprint across the country. And I just kind of want to itemize that because we, I know we have a lot of new shareholders on the call. We went from 50,000 to 115,000 over the course of a little over a year. So I want to make sure everybody understands what a kind of our geographic footprint right now looks like. So we've got a 250,000 square foot fully glass, fully automated cultivation facility in New Jersey that we grow produce. Again, our intention there is to open up retail dispensaries in New Jersey. Obviously, a big cultivation and extraction backbone on our facilities back there, leverage our current infrastructure and reduce our time to market. So our hope is opening up multiple retail dispensaries and obviously having the cultivation and extraction backbone utilizing the existing footprint we have in the New Jersey marketplace. In addition to that, in Nevada, we've got four retail dispensaries, three in Las Vegas, one in the Reno marketplace. We just finished a 30,000-square-foot cultivation facility, and we've got a 15,000-square-foot extraction lab to produce the concentrates, oil lines, and those types of things for the Nevada marketplace. Again, not only for our stores and uh, New Leaf stores, but also for all the, all the uh, retail storefronts and multiple marketplaces throughout Nevada. Um, there's the potential that they're going to issue additional permits in Nevada for additional retail locations. We're not sure what's going to happen with that just yet, but we do know for certain they're only going to issue those per permits to existing owners of retail dispensaries, so we'll be able to maintain our market saturation and avoid outside competition from new players.
players coming in and eroding our, mar eroding our market share. We are also um, planning and building one of our other cultivation permits that we won uh, in Spanish Springs, so not too far away from the existing cultivation facility. We're in planning and design right now for the construction of a one-acre greenhouse facility. Um, again, the benefits of greenhouse cultivation is the cost of productions are a lot cheaper. It provides a tremendous amount of feedstock for our extraction line so we can produce more edibles and concentrates and those types of things for the Nevada marketplace as well. So that's our current footprint and our expanding footprint coming up over the next year and a half there as well. And again, in California, we have our Oakland retail dispensary, we have our Santa Ana retail dispensary, and we have our San Leandro retail dispensary that we're going to be opening up here in the not-too-distant future. But in addition to that, we have the large-scale cultivation facility that we're building in Oakland right now. We have the on-site cultivation facility that's part of our Oakland campus. It's not gigantic, but it produces a couple million dollars of, of product on an annual basis. That facility's uh, uh, been in operation for some time now. But in addition to that, we've just purchased a large-scale facility down here in Santa Ana, California. We bought an $11.5 million campus in Santa Ana where we applied for new retail permits, and as soon as they open up the opportunity to apply for additional cultivation and extraction permits, we're going to hopefully be building out a large-scale complex and campus down here in Southern California that will house extraction, cultivation, as well as an unbelievably located retail storefront on a very major busy intersection for us here in the Santa Ana marketplace. So we acquired 44,000 square feet on three acres, and we're going through the permitting process there right now. And again, that'll be another use of capital over the next year and a half to build all these facilities out so that we can obviously expand our cultivation and footprint, our extraction footprint, and be able to have enough product out there to service our existing retail footprint, but also to have a strong wholesale presence in the marketplace throughout California. Uh, in addition, officers and directors have signed lockups um, to not sell any of their stock for one year. I'm not sure everybody has seen that, but um, we certainly are committed to align ourselves with shareholder value, and that was one of our commitments to shareholders that we're taking out any sales over the next 12 months um, for uh, officers and directors of the company. So with that, I think it's a good time, Phil. I'm going to hand the call back over to you. We can dig into, I think you probably have a pretty, pretty robust list of questions to attack. Yeah. Uh, first question, uh, post-reverse split, how many shares are now outstanding and fully diluted? Mike James, do you have the exact number on that? Yes, I do. Uh, for everybody, it appears on the first page of the 10K, but the number is 65,319,183. Uh, on a fully diluted basis, we have 68.7 million. How's that for an exact answer, Phil? Perfect. Okay, uh, with the recent right. capital raise, can you go into detail as to how you plan on using the funds from that financing? Is it for M&A, new dispensaries, et cetera? Yeah, and I ran over that a little bit. So obviously we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be putting some money into the New Jersey marketplace if we're able to, to get retail permits there for the construction of a retail facility. Your average retail facility for the tenant improvements and the security and all the other things is anywhere from 700000 to a million bucks to build out a four or 5,000 square foot retail facility. So everybody gets the economics behind that depending on the condition of the building prior to that. We'll obviously have to make some modifications to the greenhouse, um, to, to be able to comply to regulations and to be able to produce cannabis products in an efficient manner. So some CapEx will go into that as well. And again, we're finishing the build out of the extraction facility, which should be done any time now up in uh, the Reno marketplace. 
We're going to be breaking ground in the not-too-distant future on the one-acre greenhouse in the Nevada marketplace. And then, again, if we get additional retail permits, we'll be hopefully opening up additional spots and locations in the Nevada marketplace as well. In California, some of the CapEx right now is going to finishing off the other the 13,000-square-foot Oakland cultivation, finishing off the CapEx at, uh, at the um, San Leandro location, and then, um, and then obviously whatever we get permitted for here down in Santa Ana, that large-scale facility that we purchased uh, we'll have to build out associated with that as well. And then we also wanted to make sure that we maintain some semblance of reserves because I said earlier in the call, we are seeing a ton of administrative and regulation um, anxiety, stress, and uh, exhaustion in the California marketplace. Again, it's been legal here for 20 years. We haven't had very many rules or regulations, and literally in, an, in a 24-hour period from December 31st to January 1, that paradigm has changed drastically. And one of the core competencies for us, um, you know, Phil, and to whoever asked that question is administration and regulation. Because we're a publicly traded company, because we have audited financials, because we, you know, put in a lot of, you know, checks and balances and operational controls and protocols and track of our processes, that gave us a competitive advantage a little bit coming into January 1 where we didn't have to really stop and reinvent the wheel from an operational standpoint um, where while everybody else is focusing on how do we adapt to the government relations, how do we adapt to the compliance burdens and hurdles, we've had, you know, that was again one of our core strengths because we're a public company and we're able to focus on operations and sales at a time where everybody is, again, exhausted out of the admin and regulatory side of the equation. But that has also led to a very robust and full pipeline of opportunities. So there are now a lot of operators that have been in the space for 5, 10, 15 years that are looking to exit out, which is a great opportunity for us to leverage our capital structure and balance sheet to be able to accomplish that as well. So tremendous amount of energy to, uh, to rolling up into California. But it isn't as easy as everybody thinks. So one of the things that we need to make sure when we buy a company is that they have books and records that are auditable. We can't just bring in any company because if we bring in any company and their books and records aren't up to GAAP standards, we've got a problem, right? We can't audit it, and if we can't audit it, we can't file. So the pool of potential opportunities isn't as great as what it would say would be for a private company out there, but at the same time, again, leveraging our balance sheet, leveraging our, our, uh, our size and scope, and, and leveraging our access to capital and the fact that we have shares to issue as well, I think gives us a competitive advantage over other people that are trying to roll up in the space. Perfect. Is Terratech looking to build out beyond California, Nevada, and New Jersey? If so, is licensing in other states on the drawing board? Um, <laughs> the answer is no right now. And, and I say that because, again, you know, we've got the sixth largest economy in our backyard, California. I think it's a 7 to $10 billion market at full bore. You know, why am I going to go set up operations and hire new government relations people, hire new compliance people, hire new marketing staff, High, you know, rent offices, buy office furniture, have to jump on a plane and travel to a new market when I haven't even begun to tap the full breadth of the markets that we're already embedded in. So the short answer, Phil, is, is no. California, Nevada, and New Jersey are our primary focuses. Now, if something shows up at our doorstep that looks accretive and attractive, we're certainly going to investigate and look, you know, and look at it as an opportunity. But for all practical purposes right now, those are our key markets. There's hundreds and hundreds of millions of revenue and opportunity just in those markets alone, if not more than that. And so until I feel like we've hit a saturation point, it doesn't make much sense for us to kind of, you know, expand ourselves out. And I don't want to get too far over the skis. This industry is challenging, guys. I mean, we, it's not easy to, to get up every day and work in this space. The finish line moves around all the time. 
the, the regulations change and, 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 you know, you think you build out some operational control and then, you know, the, 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 the needle moves on you a little bit. So we have a lot of hurdles that average entrepreneurs and average companies don't have. I mean, I'll give you one example. It took us a year to secure office space for our corporate office that houses our executives and, and, and audit team. You know, we're not growing here. We're not producing product here. We're not dispensing. But that's still, you know, an effect of some of the negative connotation that exists out there. And so having to sit there and shop for, you know, close to a year for potential new office space comes at an opportunity cost. And I could give you, you know, 150 different examples of issues just like that that come at the cost of, you know, forward momentum. So, you know, for us to jump in a new market is just, you know, adding to, to that kind of exhaustion on our side, and I'd rather spend that, ex, you know, that energy executing in these key markets for us. So sorry for the long-winded answers, but I do like to give some perspective on, on what it takes to operate in this space in, versus, say, technology or biotech or some traditional business segment. Okay. Next uh, question. How has revenue increased in the IVEX brand for pre-filled cartridges, and is that a market you see as a growth opportunity? Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the wholesale brand to me is one of the most important opportunities. I mean, if you see, you know, what happened with Constellation Brands' investment into canopy growth and their interest in a lot of the other people, it isn't for necessarily the brick-and-mortar retail dispensaries, and it isn't necessarily just for the cultivation and extraction backbone. It's for the, you know, the potential distribution, the creation of edibles, of, of beverages, of other consumables at a wholesale level. So one of our primary focuses is, making sure that we've got a significant backbone and infrastructure for cultivation and extraction across those multiple states. And then our second goal and objective with that backbone is to make sure we push out, push out as much branded, high-grade product as we possibly can and build a lifestyle brand around it because I don't want to end up being a commodity provider. I want to have strength and brand integrity. And the only way to do that is to obviously to make sure we have a strong backbone that we can produce a significant amount of product, but that to couple with that, that we put a significant amount of energy into the development and introduction of those brands, you know, utilizing the same strategy as whether, you know, you know, tequila companies to beer companies to whether, you know, companies like Red Bull. We're not reinventing the wheel from an immersion standpoint, but we certainly are putting the time and energy and capital behind putting the infrastructure because we think that is literally one of the most important segments, if not the most important segment of the company. Perfect. How many new retail dispensaries do you anticipate opening in 2018? Where will they be? Uh, and when do, you, when do you expect them to open? <laughs> Yeah, I, I wish I could give you a lot more clarity on that, but so much of this is regulatory driven. You know, I, I, we, we were anticipating being able to drop, you know, uh, retail cannabis permits in Santa Ana for additional spots there, you know, in November, December last year, you know, and then what happens is the can gets kicked down the road, the legislation moves, the regulation gets redrafted and drafted. So as much as I'd love to put together a timeline, we are somewhat at the burden of the regulatory and legislative process in multiple jurisdictions. So I hate to gauge, uh, you know, what government is going to do on a daily basis in this chaotic world that we now live in. But I can tell you that, you know, one of the things that we're spending most of our energy is exposure in, in, in these multiple marketplaces. So we know where we want to be in Jersey. You know, we know we want to be over the border from New York and in Hoboken and Jersey City and in those types of places. In California, we want some exposure down in the San Diego marketplace. We want exposure. West Hollywood's going to be opening up application processes soon. We want to apply there. We want some Los Angeles exposure. I'd like to be in San Francisco. So, you know, those are the areas that we're looking at for retail penetration. I'd like the 
I'd like the cultivation and the extraction to be as consolidated as possible. So instead of multiple small facilities, I want one of these large mega campuses, which is why we spent $11.5 bucks on a three-acre, 44,000-square-foot facility down here in Southern California so we can achieve economies of scale in one market that's, you know, a stone's throw away from corporate. So tighter controls, tighter operations, and, you know, better transparency into what's going on on a day-in and day-out basis. So that's kind of what our broad, you know, exposure looks like right now, and then obviously getting the, the, the greenhouse operation up and running in Nevada is, uh, is, a, is a primary motivation as well. Perfect. Um, it is my understanding that most of, if not all of the land, Terratech Farms is leased land. At the end of the first year, it is renewable for three years. What guarantee is that? Is there that after developing the facilities, the leases will continue to be renewable? Yeah, we have, we have all different leases and all different facilities, and they all have, you know, some decent long-term extensions associated with them. So, you know, one of the reasons we bought the building down here in Southern California in Santa Ana is we knew we were going to dump millions of dollars into it, and I don't want to dump millions of CapEx into somebody else's facility. So, you know, we do own some, we do own one of the buildings in, in Nevada, in our Reno building, we own that one. Um, and we will be buying additional buildings if, if the CapEx is above a certain benchmark. Retail dispensaries, I normally don't mind leasing. It's tenant improvements in there. We normally structure long-term leases, and we normally put, you know, broad extension parameters on those leases so we've got, you know, some significant staying power in the markets that we're at. So we feel comfortable where we sit from a lease standpoint right now, but again, you know, we made a major acquisition in the building footprint down here in Southern California to accommodate this campus that we wanted to build because we didn't want to put millions of dollars into somebody else's facility. So we try to make those, you know, strategic, you know, decisions as, uh, on a case-by-case -case basis, and, and part of them depend on what the other opportunities are at the time. Part of them depend on what our access to capital or liquidity looks like at any given time. So sometimes, you know, the decisions are economics, and sometimes the decisions are strategic, but in a perfect world, we want to make sure if we're dumping, you know, millions of dollars in a facility that we own that facility. And a lot of our leases have lease options associated with them as well. Uh, can you tell us how sales are going in California for January and February? I mean, I can't give you any numbers. I can tell you it was a little bit of a rough start for January and February. I will say that. And the reason is, is because you had all these people existing in the gray market prior to that, right? You have gray market manufacturers, you know, extract makers, cultivators, and uh, significant gray market retail dispensaries. As, as the clock rolled over from December 31st to January 1st, you had a lot of people that had their act together. They, they walked into January 1st with their permits in hand, but you had a lot of people that did not. So a lot of the people that we normally did business with didn't get their distribution and, and cultivation and extraction permits from the state at that time, and we were, we were not able to procure product from them for a period of time until they got their act together. Same thing on the retail side. So we've heard, you know, wholesale distributors and manufacturers out there that were in seven, eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand retailers that were in 15 of them. And I want to say it was mid-February or late February, there were only 150 licensed retail dispensaries. So every other retail dispensary in California was operating in a gray market capacity. So it created this weird paradigm for a period of time that's beginning to level itself out as more and more people get licensed on the retail side and more and more people get licensed on the wholesale side. But that was that period of time where people didn't know who they could necessarily do business with. And if the proper people weren't permitted, sometimes those relationships were put on hold for a period of time. One, one thing that we did that we anticipated that this might happen to a certain degree, we bought, like we did in Nevada, the, the, the month before recreational legalization kicked on, we bought a 
what we thought was maybe two to three months supply of additional products so we weren't bogged down by that. So it didn't affect us as much as it affected everybody, but the biggest issue has been the additional tax burden. So we're going through this period of time now where they're starting to enforce and shut down the gray market shops, sending out ceases and desists, working with local authorities um, to shut down the gray market shops that aren't licensed. The, the competitive issue with that is we have all these tax burdens. They don't. They don't pay uh, HR. They don't pay workman's comp. They don't pay local taxes. They don't pay state taxes. And these gray market shops are able to sell product at a cheaper price point than we are by, while maintaining our, our margin integrity. So that's been a bit of a balancing act. I don't mean to get too, too in, into the minutia, but it was a weird period of time for January, February. Things are starting to level out right now. The industry's starting to normalize. And again, I was really surprised that the Bureau is beginning to crack down on the unlicensed dispensaries. I just thought with the, with the administrative and regulation exhaustion that they wouldn't get to that to 2019. So I love that that's happening already. So this is going to be a year of, of you know, shedding the, uh, the old environment and gravitating to the new environment. Okay. Uh, do you plan to buy farms in Canada as cannabis there will be legalized soon? Uh, no. <laughs> For all the reasons I said before, no, we're not going to, I'm not going to jump into Canada right now. We've, like I said, we got our hands full right now with the opportunities in front of us. Okay. Uh, can you explain the lockup of shares that the insiders have recently done, and can you confirm that the insiders who signed lockups are still bound following the reverse split? Yeah, we signed, uh, we signed lockups. Everybody signed them at a little bit of a different time. Um, so, you know, I think I signed mine in December, some signed in January and that type of thing. So it was a 12-month lockup, just promising to our shareholders we wouldn't liquidate any of our Terratech uh, stock in that time frame. And so, yeah, we're committed to that. That won't be something that we deviate from because we think this is a big year for growth from us. So I, I'm looking at it from a selfish standpoint. I'm looking at it from the perspective of, you know, I see what's happening with Kronos. I see what's happening with these other Canadian companies that are trading with these multi-billion dollar market caps with a revenue base and an asset base that's nowhere near what we have. And I think a lot of that overhang is due to, you know, the federal issues and, and the dichotomy between state and federal law. And so, you know, you've seen sales from insiders over, over the history, and we've done that for all different purposes. You know, uh, what I hope our, our shareholders understand in the past when we've had to sell, whether it's for phantom income taxes, other taxes, or just general security, well, we work in an environment where we're personally affected by the job that we do. I've lost my personal bank accounts. I've lost my ability to get insurance. I've lost, you know, we've lost our kids' um, kids' college savings plans. We've been kicked out. Our retirement plans have been kicked out. I mean, we've, we, you know, I've had credit cards shut down on me, banking institutions shut down on me personally. Forget the company for a standpoint. And I can tell you most of our officers and directors have experienced the same thing. So the operation in this space comes at a personal cost. You know, that and scrubbing it against the reality of, you know, we could wake up one morning. I don't think it's going to happen, but we certainly could wake up one morning and the federal government could change its stance on the industry, get far more aggressive. We've seen some shots across the bow. And, you know, for all practical purposes, they could make an attempt to shut the industry down. So, you know, we've all got children and we're all human beings at the same time, and we all need to make sure we've got some, some, some money in the bank so we can feed our family in the case that something like that happens that's outside the scope of anything that we could have, you know, gauged for, and certainly not something that we brought on. So for all practical purposes, we could be executing with perfection, but the opportunity could be stripped away from us. And we've seen it happen in gaming, you know, online gaming, you know, from a, from a legislative or regulatory change. So, you know, but our commitment was, you know, we want to make sure we don't sell any stock over the next 12 months. 
our commitment to the shareholders on a lot of different things that we've done in the past is to align ourselves from that same standpoint. We experience the reverse just the same as every other shareholder experiences the reverse. But I'm in this for the potential uplisting downstream. And, you know, having worked in, in, in Wall Street for 10 years and, and Mike had worked there for 15, 17 years, you know, I know it's a matter of time before that opportunity is available to us. And I know that opportunity should come with a significant opportunity for market cap expansion over where we are now in this illegal federal environment on the OTC. And so, you know, that just put us in a position to, to kind of save this opportunity for downstream. I don't know if it's going to happen in 12 months, but, you know, we are certainly positioning ourselves for that. And like I said before, the analogy is I want to make sure we're standing on the front door with our tuxedo and the door opens to the party. I don't, I don't want to be at home still getting ready, which was the, the catalyst for the reverse along with some other things, and it was the catalyst for the lockup. Okay. Should shareholders expect any acquisitions in the near term? You've stated your intention to do so in California, but are you considering acquisitions in Nevada or other states? Yeah, so Nevada, there's in, in a couple of the key markets in uh, Clark County, for example, they put percentage ownership limitations. You can't own any more than 10% of the outstanding stores that exist. So there are some markets that we're capped in, but we are certainly looking in other areas in Nevada where we don't violate the, those covenants. In California, there's no such covenants right now. So again, we're on a heavy M&A spree right now and having a tremendous amount of conversations, but we have to weed through the people that don't have books and records, and that's a tremendous amount of the opportunities that are here. And uh, again, we're also looking at the uh, organic growth strategy of going after new permitting opportunities in key markets that we're, uh, that we're certainly interested. So nothing that I can talk about, obviously, today with Regulation FD, fair disclosure, um, but you know, as we, as we close on these, these things, we certainly always announce those via AKs, but we are in a tremendous amount of conversations for, for M&A activities, specifically around retail expansion. Those, in those key markets that I pointed out to you, San Diego, Southern California, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Can you comment on management's commitment to creating shareholder value? Yeah, I mean, shareholder value is always a tough one. I, I mean, I told you we, we grew shareholder equity from 50 million, 52 million to 75 million over the last year. You know, we're putting together an extremely significant footprint across the country and I think very pivotal in key markets. We're spending a ton of money on CapEx. We've built out an amazing uh, government relations and compliance department to make sure we're operating all these facilities and adhering to rules and regulations and we don't put ourselves at risk. We put a ton of capital and energy into uh, making certain that we can lobby and shape regulation in multiple marketplaces. And all that comes, again, with a, with, a, with a need for capital. And that need for capital comes at a temporary cost of issuing shares, right? There's just no other way to get capital for companies that are in our space. And I think we've got very fair and equitable priced financing. We've got great capital partners that we've had for years that have traded our stock extremely well. I think a lot of the overhead burden that we've experienced in the stock over the last 12 months has come from using the stock for M&A activities. So when we bought Bloom in Oakland and we bought Santa Ana, those people ultimately put their stock in the marketplace and convert that stock to cash. And, and we're seeing what I think is the tail end of that, which brings me a tremendous amount of confidence that overhead pressure is going to begin to, to disappear. Um, but again, you know, for some of you newer shareholders, just so you understand, from day one, you know, none of us executives, me, Mike James, uh, Mike Nahaus, when we started the company, we went four and a half years without taking a salary. All of 2010, 2011, 2012, 
2013 and three actually three quarters of 2014. We didn't take a dime out of the company. We spent down our savings. We cashed out our IRAs, our 401ks. We didn't want to put a burden on the company. That was a, a commitment we made to shareholders. Some of you older shareholders will know this and your newer ones won't. We used to have what they call a preferred B share. We didn't have common shares, the officers and directors. We had preferred B shares. Those preferred B shares gave us 101 voting rights to maintain some semblance of control. But even more than that, they actually had a provision built into the certificate of designation that said, if we conduct a reverse merger, guess what? These B shares don't reverse. And that was a pair, that was a, that was, when we originally did the reverse merger of the company, when we went public, that was the share structure that was originally developed. We obviously didn't think that was fair and equitable, and that would have, you know, conducting a reverse with that kind of provision in place would have been an unbelievable dilution to our common shareholders. So all of us B shareholders got together. We altered and amended the certificate of designation to make sure that our shares were reversible. And not only that, we forced converted those shares into common. So we don't own preferred shares. We own common shares. And my shares and all the other executive officers' shares got 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 uh, reversed to the same calculation as everybody that's on the phone with us today. And that was our commission, commitment to shareholders, was to make absolutely certain that we align ourselves with our shareholders in every capacity. I need the stock to go up for this to, to make sense for me. So does Mike Neha. So does Mike James. So does everybody else in the company. And that was a big commitment to us to make sure that we didn't do anything inappropriate that affected our common shareholders that have been with us for years. We also locked up our shares, as we spoke about, over the next 12 months, and that was a big deal as well. And if you look at the way we comp ourselves on a go-forward basis, we mostly comp ourselves from a performance standpoint using options and warrants. We don't give ourselves straight equity very much anymore. Um, and we do that because, and we price those options and warrants at market. And I'll give you an example. The last issuance that we did at the beginning part of the year, I want to say it was at 29 cents or so. If you convert that out to the, the reverse split, I think it's about 430, 4.40 a share before there's any economic value in those. So we have to perform, or that equity component on an annual basis from a bonus standpoint for us doesn't mean anything. We don't make any money from our equity allocations on an annual basis unless the stock price goes up. So that's our commitment to shareholders. That's been our historical commitment to shareholders. I know everybody gets upset when the stock price goes down, but we are in a volatile sector. Every time the government comes out and opens their mouth, it causes headwinds. We had a great run into the new year. That got affected by the ripping up of the coal memo. And it's just the paradigm in which we live in. You know, we're on the OTC. We're working in an environment that's federally illegal. We're not your average company at the end of the day. And we've been able to grow the company from the first year of being a half a million in sales to 35 million in a handful of years. And I'm pretty proud of what we've accomplished from that standpoint. Has it been perfect? Absolutely not. But have we done the right thing for our shareholders? At least I wake up in the morning feeling like we have. And those are a few examples of what we've done over the past. Okay. Uh, NASDAQ has approved both the Canadian LP as well as a blank check company that is looking to acquire an ancillary cannabis business. Do you sense that it is possible that NASDAQ or any other major exchange would allow a company that directly touches the plant in the U.S. to list? Oh, I wish I knew, but I do want to make sure that I am the company that's standing on their doorstep in the nicest tuxedo that you've ever seen with millions and millions and tens of millions of revenue and tens of millions of shareholder equity and a gigantic balance sheet and significant capitalization. I want to make it hard for them to say no and a price per share that isn't 30 cents. So I wish I had a, I wish I had a roadmap for that, but I do know it's going to happen eventually. It's just a matter of when. Do we need full federal legalization for that? I don't know. 
I think maybe some long-standing piece of legislation that's like the Rohrbacher, Blumenauer, Rohrbacher, Farr Amendment, but that's something in perpetuity that doesn't need to be renewed as a rider on the spending bill on an annual basis. But we have friends in government now on both sides of the aisle. We haven't had that in the past. We have bipartisan support. You're starting to see the, the, um, the, the polls, the Gallup polls and the other polls that are coming out showing that these guys are going to have constituent risk. And we've seen some of these you know, special elections go Democrat. And I think if you're looking at Republicans right now, an anti-stance on cannabis when the majority of uh, Americans want tax and regulation, I think is going to come with some political risk. And I think they're beginning to understand that. We're starting to see some Republican advocates that are on the, on the kind of, say, more moderate side or libertarian side of the equation that are really starting to voice and stand up for the industry. And it isn't even so much for the industry as it is, hey, support cannabis. It's more about supporting states' rights. It's hard to take a stance that you're supporting states' rights on gun control, supporting states' rights on abortion, immigration, you name it, but somehow we're able to segregate out states' rights when it comes or to or pertains to cannabis. And remember, most of the regulation that we see around the country isn't done through um, the creation of legislation at the, at the uh, government level. Most of it is done through ballot initiative. And you talk about movement of the people and movement of a constituent basis, for people to have to go out and hire and raise money to get signatures to get these things on the ballot and ultimately have them voted for, that's a big deal. That's, that, that is a way different paradigm than a bunch of legislators getting together like they are in New Jersey beginning to adapt regulations around adult-use cannabis. That is the people really speaking. And I've said this in the past, and I'll say it again. The reason gun control is such an, a challenging debate is because you're really trying to go in and affect something that somebody has, something that somebody owns inside their home. And cannabis is something very similar to that. It's a tangible product. You know, immigration, some of these other, and abortion, some of these other major issues, they're, they're, they're somewhat intangible unless you're going through that personally. But cannabis is something that people touch and hold on a very frequent basis and when you start to talk about prohibition and pulling something away from somebody, that is where the, where the people of this country do stand up and do voice themselves. And when they begin to voice themselves, especially coming into a mid, midterm election cycle, and I don't care whether you're Democrat, I don't care whether you're Republican, but I can tell you this is what the people want. We've seen it across the board in the polls. We've seen it across the board in the ballot initiative. We don't want to send this money to Mexico. We don't want to send this money to South America. We don't want to bring drugs in and send our money south. We want to tax it, regulate it, and we want to provide treatment services for the percentage of the population that does have a problem with addiction. That's how we should be looking at the war on drugs. The war on drugs that we've experienced in the past has failed. The numbers and the data points don't lie. We've seen the data points coming out of multiple jurisdictions, whether it's Colorado, and we're going to start to see more and more of those come out of California and some of the other marketplaces where we're seeing a drop in teen use. We're seeing a significant and accretive drop in opiate deaths which is a major stance for this administration. So for me, it's a matter of time before the paradigm shifts even further. And as we start to get more data points out there, data-driven information out there into the market, I think that will continue to help to sway voter sentiment. And that voter sentiment, to me, is ultimately what's going to tip the scales in our favor downstream. Again, I don't know whether it's 12, 24, 36, 48 months, you name it, but the, the, the snowball is growing and the momentum is beginning to grow, and I think this is a pivotal year for us, which is, again, why I wanted to position the company for potential uplisting. Sorry for the long-winded answer. Uh, last question. I see there are a number of Canadian cannabis companies who don't have nearly as much revenue as Terratech but have much larger market caps. Can you please explain why that is? 
you know, welcome to my frustration. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, the, the only thing I can say that it perhaps is that they're operating in, a, in an environment that's federally legal. They don't have a government that's uh, in, a, in a DOJ that's you know, bent on shutting them down. And, and that's a big consideration for people. So I think that keeps a cap on the equity markets in the U.S., but I think that also creates a tremendous amount of opportunity for people that don't care about the liquidity and price movement over the next 6, 12, or 18 months, but care about this for a longer-term play when those things sort themselves out. In the meantime, again, we're building out the biggest infrastructure and, and putting a tremendous amount of energy into our brand recognition is absolutely possible to position ourselves for that time frame. But you know, at the very minimum, it's certainly given us some optics of what the appetite is for investment out there in the space, right? And so I think ultimately we end up on the NASDAQ, we end up on the NYSE at some point in time, and there's going to be a lot of capital chasing a very few, very few opportunities in the space. And I've seen that on my experience in Wall Street. And when that happens, you start to get these parabolic moves and uh, you start to get institutional investment and those types of things in the space. So you know, I, it's frustrating to see that they're capitalizing themselves to the degree that they are, but at the same time, you know, it's nice to see because we're seeing momentum in the space in another marketplace, and it provides a validation point for what I had expected to happen here in our country, but I think it will happen to a bigger degree here. So, again, we're putting a lot of our emphasis and attention to making sure we're completely positioned for an uplisting so when that opportunity does present itself, we can execute on it quickly. In the meantime, I'm going to capitalize the company as cheaply as possible with an eye towards dilution, but I've got to build out a footprint, you know, and, and if people don't have the staying power, this company isn't for everybody. Investment in this space isn't for everybody. So people need to make sure that they've got, you know, a longer-term vision for the space just like we do from a management standpoint, we know it's going to take time to, to execute on our vision ultimately, but our vision is simple. We want to have a premier brand of retail dispensaries and a premier brand of wholesale products, period, exclamation point. We want to make sure we execute those brands and what we believe are the key markets right now for potential future expansion into other markets. Okay. That is all for questions. Well, again, I want to take a minute and thank everybody. I don't know what our shareholder count is uh, up to now, but it's been astronomical, and, and, I, and, and I know the reverse has been a, a huge, huge concern for a lot of people, and it's a scary thing to go through. But I'm committed, and the management committed is committed to executing. We're not going anywhere. We're pushing this thing through as fast and as furious as possible. We, we work countless hours on a day-in and day-out basis to make sure that we're building the company in the, in the most beneficial manner. Like I said, we've certainly made mistakes. We'll probably make some more. There's no, there's no playbook for, for doing this. There's no, hey, let's look at what Facebook did and replicate that. I mean, we, we are literally, you know, building the map while we're riding down the road at the same time. And we're, you know, and I've used the analogy, we're jumping out of an airplane and trying to figure out how to build a parachute on the way down. And there's a tremendous amount of truth to that. So thank you for the confidence. Thank you for enduring all the ups and downs. I want to thank you to our independent board members as well of taking us through this audit process. I want to thank MGO. This was a very, who are our public auditors. This was a very challenging audit for us. I want to thank our audit department who's been working countless hours of doing both this 2015 and 2017 at a time where we're an accelerated filer with a very short shot clock. Um, so now that this is behind us, we can wake up uh, Monday morning. Uh, actually, tomorrow, Saturday, we'll probably be working tomorrow. We'll wake up tomorrow morning. With, uh, with our time, effort, and energy going to, uh, going to building the business for 18 and 19. So with that being said, I'll wrap the call up today. I want to thank everybody for their time and energy for, uh, for being on the call today. Talk to you soon.